Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Maggie Haberman, a White House correspondent for The New York Times and an analyst at CNN. Haberman was born and grew up in New York and worked at The New York Post and Politico before joining The Times in 2015. After covering the election last year, she has been reporting on the Trump administration and is considered to be one of, if not the single most, wired in reporter in Washington. Maggie Haberman joins me now from our New York studio. Maggie, welcome. Isaac, thank you for having me. So I want to know, since you are someone who I think people people read your byline, people have some sense about you, maybe from Twitter or from, from the articles you write, it's a crazy time to be living in. It's a crazy time to be covering Washington. Can you just lay out what your day is like as the White House correspondent for The New York Times? Sure. I, I liked your uh, crazy time to be living because that's true um, for, for everybody. Um, I'm I'm one of six people on our White House team and I live in New York. Uh, the rest of our team is in D.C. Uh, Glenn Thrush, who is my closest collaborator on our team, uh, is a former New Yorker. So there's a certain rhythm to it that's a little easier otherwise uh, might be. But I mean, my day is sort of if I'm in New York, it's centered around taking children to school in the morning, going to work during the day and then. The day sort of never ends in the Trump era, right? I mean, this is what we saw in the campaign, too, is you are watching until late at night when, you know, strange filaments of news start floating around or when he tweets or, you know, someone gives a cable interview or so forth and so on, or just, you know, something happens and you get a scoop. Uh, when I'm in D.C., it's it's really just, you know, running from the minute I'm awake until the end of the day. I try to use D.C. to see people who I wouldn't see otherwise. Um, but uh, it's a lot of perpetual motion. I don't know of another way to describe it. And I have spent the last um, two years overall, which I expected for the first 18 months of it because it was a campaign, but the last six months of it um, canceling more plans than I ever imagined I'd have to. Personal plans, I assume you mean. Correct. Yeah. So I, I, I guess what I'm wondering is you you come into the office and you start working and you're talking to sources and you're tweeting and you're doing whatever it is journalists do, writing your stories. Can can you compare kind of how that's different from previous administrations you've covered or previous campaigns you covered that is it is it that people are calling you more? Are you constantly thinking there's some story I need to get? What is it that's driving it? Is it that your editor says, well, you've got to cover this because this happened 12 different times today? What What is it? Sure. It, it's all of the above and it depends on the day, right? I mean, sometimes there is something happening that is deadline driven or government driven and we know what it is and we gravitate toward it. So the Affordable Health Care Act would be an example of that today, right? Or yesterday. Um, other times it's the president's going to hold a press conference and, you know, what do we expect him to say? Other times it's, and this is oftentimes, um, there is some, you know, staff intrigue going on. And the difference in this White House to other White Houses is it is the leakiest White House I've ever covered. Um, and it's one of the leakiest administrations I've ever covered. I've covered New York City government for years. I covered state government in New York for years. Um, and I've covered other other municipalities. Um, this is this is really unheard of. Um, you know, it's almost as if the staff in the Trump White House uses reporters as a reality testing measure. Um, I think because the perspective from inside the building can um, feel somewhat distortive sometimes. Um, so you see a lot of people reaching out. And it's obviously not just to us. It's also the Washington Post. It's also to Politico. Um, it's also to, you know, CNN. It's also to other publications. Um, the level of sort of chaos and, and dysfunction within this West Wing is high. And so and it's not just 
who's up, who's down, you know, staff machinations. It is the story of how this president governs and manages. And that's very important. So we spent a lot of time on that. Let me ask you, when you say a reality testing mechanism, is that what you said? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. you mean that they're what do you mean by that? That someone inside the White House feels like they have a distorted perspective and so they call you or what 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 say what say what you yeah mean. i think that therapists look therapist uh, 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 therapist sorry i think reporters are often that's an interesting slip maggie that's an interesting people was, <laughs> i'm very tired i think reporters are are often sort of therapists for people working on campaigns right this would not be the first campaign where that happened although it did um i think it happened on the clinton side of the equation too but I do think you have a lot of people inside the White House who feel the need to essentially get a reality check. You know, from your perspective, is this blah, blah, blah? Or, you know, this seems, you know, this this weird thing is going on in here. I'll give you a for instance. So I tweeted last Friday that the um, super PAC supporting um, President Trump that uh, Mike Pence has been supportive of and one of his former aides works for, two of his former aides work for, um, was planning a seven-figure ad buy against uh, Dean Heller, the senator from Nevada, who was a no vote on the Affordable Health Care Act. Now, that it has not materialized to seven figures, but it is now at six figures um, as of, you know, 2.35 today or whatever time this is. Um, this is Tuesday and, for people, Tuesday. Um, yes. Right. I tweeted, <laughs> tweeted that. Um, and... You know, I got a lot of messages from people inside the White House saying some version of this makes no sense. Why are we doing this? You know, did you get any sense from people you spoke to about what their thinking was? That's what I mean. It is very unusual to have reporters sort of be conduit is the wrong word, but but be sort of channelers of various uh, types of information from rival factions inside a government. And that's what you see here. What is your sense of what the people inside the White House, and this is a generalized question, you can answer it however you like, but what is your sense of what they make of their boss and his leadership style? I think it depends on who you're seeing, who you're talking to. I think that for, remember, most of the people in this this government um, have no previous administrative experience before in a White House, right? So they don't really have a huge basis for comparison. Um, Most of them, I would argue, are beginning to see that this is not typical. This is not how a White House normally functions. I think that... Well, it's only June 2017. They're finally realizing this. Okay, that's good. (laughs) You know, I think, look, I think that that sometimes looking into the abyss can be um, hard. And so I think that a lot of people, uh, it has taken some time, but I think most of them recognize you know, for better or worse, right, that this is not um, a typical White House. Most of them also recognize that Trump seems to both foster and um, tolerate an astonishing amount of chaos um, taking place right beneath him. And and I think it is uh, anxiety provoking. Right. It's yeah. No, it's uh, it's it's definitely anxiety provoking. Speaking of anxiety, I I was trying to make a smoother transition, but I blew it. Speaking of anxiety, (laughs) how much anxiety do you have? I I don't mean about the country or whatever politics, but I mean, just do you feel constantly anxious with your phone going off? Do you have moments in the day where you try to shut it off or you tell your kids, I'm not going to look at my phone? Um, Do you turn it off at night? How do you how do you regulate that anxiety? I never turn it off uh, at night, which is a really bad thing. Um, but I, uh, I do try to go a couple of hours without looking at it over the weekend. Um, you know, with with mixed levels of success. Uh, I think that was very hard 
for the first three months or so of the administration. I think at this point, everyone has recognized, you know, you have to you have to take a break or else it's just not going to it's just not going to work. Um, but uh, look, this has been this has not been easy on my kids. This has been, um, you know, uh, this has been hard for them. I think that it's I, I'm I'm the I'm the daughter of journalists. So it's not like I don't know how this is on children. And I am trying hard with pretty mixed levels of success um, to be uh, to be present. Um, and I think that the Trump administration, plus the fact that we are all connected all the time, um, makes that very hard. Trump seems to like you and seeks you out for interviews. Do you have can you talk about first how you met him and what your relationship was like and then why you think he, that relationship is con- continued now despite your reporting? I actually want to be clear on something that I think is pretty important. I don't think he has sought me out for interviews as president. Um, and I have been pretty clear about that um, in, a, in an interview that uh, not an interview, but a piece that uh, Dylan Byers at CNN did about me. Uh, I did not participate in it, but I did make very clear to him because um, he asked me a question along those lines. You know, he said, can you just answer this? And I said, I, you know, yeah, I can answer that. And that's not true. I want to be very clear that that's not, um, you know, what you're saying is 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 not quite the way this has worked. I have asked for time when he has spoken to me. So what I don't want is um, is to leave some misimpression about that. Um, I think that in terms of, look, his one of his aides, Sam Nunberg, came to me and uh, early on, when he was still thinking about running in 2016 and said, Trump is going to declare on June 16th and we want you to break it. And I said, no. And he said, why? And I said, because I did this in 2011 and I'm not I'm not going to be Lucy with the football again. You know, and in 2011, Trump had made all these noises about running and he didn't run. And um, then he decided he wasn't going to run during sweeps week for The Apprentice. And Right after that Funny was that yeah. odd how that works. What right after that was that White House Correspondents Association dinner where Obama just you know eviscerated him. Um, but so I don't. Um, uh, I I just sort of I just sort of feel like I um, I think that um, I think he knows me. I think he knows that I I uh, work for the New York Post. I think that he tends to be more familiar with people who are um, uh, from New York. I, you know, the fact that I worked at tabloid and so forth and so on. But I don't think that he is um, uh, like seeking me out or anything like that. I also think that you have to remember how incredibly um, important the New York Times is, right, in his, in his mind. That's a really, really significant thing. He is he is very, very big on sort of the validation of the New York Times. Um, you know, real estate developer who came in from Queens into Manhattan was never taken very seriously by the city's elites. And that's a big thing for him. And so I think that, um, you know, to the extent that you see you have seen him, you know, prior to winning during the campaign, um, when when his team would seek me out on something, and far more often it was me seeking things out, it's because, you know, the Times holds a singular fascination for him and he wants their approval. Did you meet him when you were at the Post? How did you get to know him? Or did I you? don't remember if it was at the Post or the Daily News, and I didn't know him particularly well when I was at the tabloids. I really got to know him in 2011 when he was um, uh, when he was doing his sort of pseudo run or his proto, proto, proto run, whatever it was. Um, but he is... Um, you know, he was sort of everywhere, 
right? I mean, Trump for a tabloid commodity, when I was at the Post and at the Daily News, um, I was at the Post first, then the news, then I went back to the Post. And the common thread on those 14 years is that Donald Trump was sort of omnipresent. The Daily News had a bit of a difficult relationship with him. Um, Pete Hamill, who had been the editor-in-chief for a time in the 90s, um, had really resisted writing about Donald Trump st- uh, and his divorce and stories about him and so forth. And the Post just ate it up. Um, but he was he was sort of everywhere. It was even then, honestly, I hadn't thought about this until you just asked this question, but the, the, the tabloid construct at that point was you either love Trump or hate Trump. And if you love Trump, it was the Post. And if you hated Trump, it was the Daily News. But it's very much what you see him kind of putting on people now. What do you mean putting on people? I mean, I think that he's turns everything into kind of an up down vote on him. Right. At literally everything, whether something relates to him or not. He conflates himself with the institutions that he serves and with the people he represents. So he turns everything into a referendum on him in in one direction or the other. And I think that he there is an omnipresence about his presidency that I don't remember with previous presidents. Um, and I'm 40, 43. So I feel like I can say that. Uh, right. I. Yeah, no. There's there's another word for turning everything into a referendum on you, but I, I guess you can you can you can say that word if you want. Uh, I was thinking solipsism, but um, right. I, I knew which word you meant. Thank yeah. you. Oh, okay, okay. A little mansplaining is what this podcast needs. I, think. I appreciate. Thank you. No, no, that's good. That's good. We can do that again before the end of the episode. Okay, good. Well, I, I won't be able to help it, so it'll definitely happen before the end of the episode. <laughs> What? Uh, well, no, a two part question. The first is, has he changed in any way since 2011 that you've noticed? I don't mean in terms of age, per se. I just mean has, anything about his personality. It's a great question. Um, I don't I don't think so. I mean, I think by 2011, he was pretty hardened into what we see now, which is not really able to laugh at himself. Um, you know, absolutely no problem with fudging facts, which he's always had an issue with. Um you know, I think that uh, I think he has gotten maybe a little bit more uh, vocal about terrorism since 2011 and about um, uh, about about radical Islam, as he would put it. Um, but I think that that's by dint of running more than anything else. I mean, it's not like the birther lie that he was so eager to you know fan in 2011 um, was unrelated to um to terrorism or to Muslims. So I, or being other, um, but he certainly is more vocal about it. I, I don't, I, I think he, um, I think he's slightly less careful with what he says now. Um, I, I don't think there's a huge difference between him from 2011 to now. I think there's a bigger difference between him from 2000, which is when he had flirted with running previously in a pretty public way uh, to 2011. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you said making fun of himself or la- being able to laugh at himself. If you watch interviews from 2000 or even up in, at Howard, up on the Howard Stern show, I would say two, through 2003, 2004, he really does have an ability to laugh at himself and to kind of look at mm-hmm. himself as an ironic figure. And I don't think mm-hmm. that's there anymore. And that that's interesting. That's how you phrased it. Yeah, no, I agree with – I mean, look, it's, it's funny because, as you know, one of his favorite phrases about – Anything in life is, you know, is uh, they're laughing at us. This person's laughing at me. This person's laughing at that one. Everyone's laughing at the United States. It's like some very protracted version of the prom scene in Carrie, right? Where it's like everything is all about are you being laughed at? Um, Hopefully not ending the same way for the country, but yeah, okay. I, 
I didn't. I'm not saying it was. I'm not saying they they were twin moments. I'm just saying that the singular focus on that has been really, um, really striking. When you go into the White House and interview him, what is is there some aspect before the tape recorder's on that's that seems different about him than you think people would get from just reading your interview or watching him being interviewed? I mean, I think that he's. Um, Look, we the last Oval Office interview that we did, we ran the transcript and, you know, every every pretty much every interview we've done with him in the last year, I think since David Sanger and I did this, um, the first foreign policy interview we did with him, um, I think they've all been um, uh, pretty clear on who he is. But he is charming in a way that I think doesn't necessarily leap off the page on the transcripts. Um, he's he can be very funny. He can be very disarming. Um, there was a moment in um, the interview that Glenn Thresh and I did with him about infrastructure, um, which is the one where he also opened by defending Bill O'Reilly and saying that Susan Rice should be in jail. But um, he uh, uh, at one point, Gary Cohen, the president's top economic advisor, um, sneezed and sort of sneezed all over Glenn, uh, who was sitting to my left and Gary Cohen was sitting to his left and you know, was sort of flanking one side of the resolute desk. And the president said, oh, watch it. You know, that's a that was a that was a that was a big one. You know, I got to protect my guy. And it was just, <laughs> it was just sort of a funny moment. Um, he has a bunch of those. But, you know, if you look, read the transcripts of him talking, he talks on tape the same way he talks if you're off the record, which is in this really discursive style. I mean, one of the things that I think that people miss about about him especially with a lot of the stories that get done about palace intrigue is sometimes when he's asking someone, you know, I, this is a, for instance, I'm not saying this person is in trouble, quote unquote, but you know, how do you think Sean Spicer is doing? Um, sometimes he might have in mind that he wants to find someone else. Sometimes it's just the way he talks. Sometimes he'll make a decision and he'll ask repeatedly, you know, was that the right decision or I think I made the wrong decision, such as when he chose Mike Pence mm. over the summer and came very close to undoing it uh, later that night, despite aides insisting that wasn't the case. Um, what his aides insisted at the time was that is just how he talks. That is just how he talks. And sometimes it is just how he talks. And the key is figuring out when he's actually thinking about making a change or not. And very rarely are you going to know until after it's done. You mentioned palace intrigue stories, and one of the things that I think is interesting is there, there's been a lot of criticism. I've, I've certainly written that piece making fun of stories about palace intrigue and how the media spends— You? Yeah, okay, yeah. Sorry. Occasionally, occasionally. Um, but— uh, This is woman-splaining. I'm just doing it backwards. Oh, good, 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 good. Um, <laughs> no, but I—see, now you've thrown me for a total loop here. I don't know what to say. Sorry. No, no, no. I just got to get my, my rhythm back. So I was going to—basically, I was going to say that— Palace intrigue stories, some people don't like them. Some people say they're not, you know, you should be focusing on issues. Do you feel, though, in this White House that palace intrigue stories are a level more important than in previous White Houses? I absolutely, absolutely do. I mean, and I'm sorry, I thought I had um, said that before, so I apologize for not being clear. But yeah, I mean, it's they they um, they tell a story that that few other things do, especially because uh Look, there are certain things that are going on in this White House. They they are rolling back a lot of regulations, and that was a big campaign promise of his. And for his voters, that is a, an important promise kept. Um, his detractors do not like it, but it is something he's done. But beyond that, there is not a whole lot of major work coming out of this White House. And so, you know, the staff intrigue stories, quote unquote, really are telling the story of him adjusting. 
Well, let, let me just tell you my own development about this, and then you can tell me if you think I'm right or wrong, which is when, when the palace intrigue stories were starting during the transition, and there'd be stories, you know, Jared's up, Bannon's down, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And my sense had been as someone who doesn't know Trump and but reads the news that, you know, the last person to whisper in his ear is really important. And so the the, the importance of palace intrigue stories is obvious because this is how yep. a policy is going to get made. I guess over the last six months, I've changed a little bit. And I sort of think that, yeah, it probably matters somewhat who's whispering in his ear. But at the same time, Trump is going to be Trump no matter who's whispering in his ear. And he can't. Be That's kid- very true. Okay. That's very true. Yeah, I mean, but but it's not always true. Trump is going to be Trump if Trump feels very strongly about a certain issue. So I'll give you an example. The Paris Accord. Um, Trump was never really going to come, you know, around and keep it, even though I think he might have gotten sort of close, depending on who you're talking to. But I'm not sure that that isn't just people trying to make themselves feel better. This is that he believes it's a bad deal. He This is actually an area that he cares about. Um, it's something that that he has focused on before. It is in keeping with his kind of nativist instincts that have been consistent, by the way, for 30 years. So nobody was really going to get that wasn't, you know, that wasn't. Yes, it was a win for the Bannonite wing of the White House, whatever you want to describe that as. But really, that was Scott Pruitt. And that was the president himself Um, on a bunch of other things. The president could be swayed. Um, You know, there are also to your point, though, about like Trump is going to be Trump. I know that, you know, Ivanka and Jared get tons of credit for. Um, the the LGBT protections that stayed in place, you know, circa Obama um, under the current president. I don't think Trump was ever going to undo those. Trump is not um, is not anti LGBT rights in the way that um, a lot of Republicans have approached the issue. Um, he's look. He's certainly not going to be leading a pride parade. Um, but one of the, remember one of the first things that he said when he came into office was that um, same sex marriage decisions is the law of the land and should stay that way. Um, so I wasn't surprised that he did that, and I think that was where he was leaning. Look, he can always be influenced, and if he if it's an area where he's unfamiliar, um, then he can be influenced. If it's hiring a staffer, he can be influenced. If it's you know, what he should think about somebody. If you whisper in his ear something bad that person said about him, that can influence him. But on sort of these these broader issues, yes, I, he has he has a certain grounding and he sticks with that. I think your impulse is correct. Um, just to talk about your career for for a minute, you made the journey from from Politico to The Times, which is something that now I think a fair amount of people have done. And I was wondering how you think the political coverage and your job changed when you went to the Times versus being at Politico? Um, you know, when I was at Politico, when I first got there in 2010, I was, among other things, I was pregnant with my third child. Um, I was doing a blog out of New York, and I really was, I mean, you know, Politico tried very hard to get me off of this idea, and I just wouldn't. Um, I I really wanted to write about New York, and they... You could argue that I was ahead of the curve or you could argue that I was completely resisting change because, you know, the party has kind of come around back to New York. I mean, the you know, the general party of political coverage has been pretty New York centric over the last couple of years. Um, but I don't um, I don't think that I was quite ready to um, be a national reporter, if I'm if I'm being honest. And uh, so I focused a lot on New York. And then in 2011, um, I was assigned to a blog that was co-anchored by Alex Burns. 
um, who I barely knew. We had coincidentally gone to the same high school um, many years apart. But uh, but that really worked. And we you know, our coverage sort of clicked and we we wrote a a shared blog with a singular voice. And that was a challenge. And, and I think we did it really well. Um, and I didn't travel a ton, but that was when I did a lot of the Trump stuff in 2011. And then, um, you know, look, I mean, the political coverage was very focused on quicker hits. Um, the Times likes to take a little bit longer, but I think at Politico, you know, you do sort of fewer dutiful day stories. I think at a large institution, you do have to do that. And that's a little more challenging in the Trump era where the news can change from a.m. to p.m. pretty fast. Um, right. Well, you know, I, I, yeah, go on. Sorry, go ahead. No, oh, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, I mean, I was wondering also, given that a lot of political people went to the Times, if you think the Times in the two years you got there has changed in a. Oh, I think so. I mean, look, I think that the Times I think the Times tried first draft as a as a standalone sub page. Um, and I think that. um you know, sub pages weren't really visited that often anymore. But I think first draft did have a lot of really terrific reporting on it. Um, I was doing when I first got to the Times a lot of pretty quick hit stuff, and and it found an audience, and and editors were receptive. Um, but you know, I mean, I think that um, I don't think that the nature of the Times's coverage has changed. I think that the nature of politics has changed, and so I think that you know some reporters who are are used to sort of a a, a more tabloidy environment perhaps is useful, but I don't think that that means that the times has become different than what it was. I just think the environment has changed. I mean, you know, Glenn Thrush is a, was a magazine writer before he came to the times. Um, and, uh, and yet here he is at the risk of incurring your wrath, because I know you argue with people about this on Twitter. Uh, but I did want to bring but it up. Thank, thanks for that. Great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a good way no, to no, en no, go on. enter into the subject. No, it's gonna be really good. Yeah. Um, well, I just wanted to know, looking back in hindsight, how do you feel like the media's coverage and the Times in particular's coverage of Hillary Clinton over the campaign was? Um, I think that I'm not a spokesperson for our coverage of Hillary Clinton. Um, I think that um, uh, I think that there are areas where we did well and I think there are areas that we didn't do well. But if you're asking if I think that we focus too heavily on her emails, the answer is no, I do not think so. I think that she was under FBI investigation, despite her campaign claiming that she wasn't, by the way. Um, and um, I don't know. I, you'd have to compare it to the other time a major party nominee was under active FBI investigation for me to have a sense of whether we blew it out of proportion. Well, right. I mean, I, I guess put put the times aside. I mean, I know there was that there was that front page with the, you know, when the Comey letter came out and I'm you, sorry. Oh. But you know what? I, 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 I'm, I know I've said this on Twitter, too. No, no. Say it again. Saying again. Sure. Why not? Um, the debate is basically whether it should have been two or three stories that day on the front page. The debate is whether the headlines were spe specific or not. That letter was remarkable. And the idea that it should not have been covered is um, is baffling to me. And I'm, I strongly suspect if that that letter had been written about any of her rivals and the Times had covered it the way her folks suggest we should have. Um, that and it isn't really her folks. It's honestly her supporters, mostly some some campaign people. But they would have accused us of of burying it. So I, I don't look. I, we every every media outlet made a lot of mistakes, right? It, it, you know, I personally made a lot of mistakes in 2016. Um, but I think that focusing on that day is um, no. That's fair. I, I, I maybe I should not be focusing on the times. I mean, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you're you're you're, pick, you're picking out a. You're picking out the times, which I really 
wish you wouldn't do, number one. And number two, if um, just because it's it's not really something I can address here in a fulsome way. And 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 number two, since you're mentioning that one headline, I, I think that, con- you know, the number of times I have had people tweet that headline at me is um, really quite something. But I, I, I'm, I'm really all ears as to what we should have done that would have been some some great solution with a, an, a, a really unusual letter like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that my larger complaint personally would be the issue of, you know, the evening newscast spending more time on emails during, I think, 2016 than, I, you know, they added up all the issues, healthcare, uh, global warming, all these things. And I do think that, that that is a problem, but that's a larger problem with news coverage generally. Then I wish you had asked that instead of just about the New York Times. Well, hey, but maybe I'll just on. maybe I'll just unedit the whole part. The whole but that could right that can be your mistake for this podcast. Um, <laughs> There'll be the, more than um, one anyway. There'll be more than one. <laughs> um, last question, and then then I'll I'll let you go. Um, is there some aspect of? I mean, maybe I don't want to I don't want to make you uh, blow a scoop, but I mean, is there some aspect of the Trump administration that you feel like you're more interested in that you want to read more about that you want to think about more that you want to talk to more people about? What 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 interests you um, intellectually? Excellent, that is an excellent question. There are two, and one is um, uh, one is I just would like to read more about the regulatory reforms that they're making and or changes that they're making or or rollbacks. Um, I, I think it is it is there is a profound impact. I think that there's three areas. That's one. The other is just more sort of um, uh, it, it's a, it's more of a mood piece, but it's about the empowered uh, uh, cabinet secretaries in a sort of um, decentralized White House like we're seeing. Right. Especially where a lot of these positions are not filled. And then the other and this is just because I have kids um, uh I'm, I, I'd like to read a lot more about what Betsy DeVos is doing with education funding. Um, those are all interesting areas. Uh, Maggie Haberman, thank you for taking time out from your extremely busy schedule to, uh, and that was not a, that was not mocking you, a, literally a very busy <laughs> schedule, to uh, come do uh, this podcast. Uh, I always love talking to you, you know that. All right, thanks. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling, with help today from Mary Wilson. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. And one more thing. If you're looking for great podcasts from Slate, maybe you think this one doesn't measure up, why don't you check out Trumpcast? The rotating hosts are Jacob Weisberg, Virginia Heffernan, and Jamel Bowie, and they dive deep into all things Trump. Stay up to date on his latest tweets, his scandals, the news about him. Each week from Trumpcast, you will get all this and more. Find it at slate.com slash Trumpcast. Wasn't that fun? That was great. That was great. You're a hoot.